Hi, this is Gary Meese with The Case Against. I'm back again after a layoff of a month or so. Trying to get my throat into shape for doing podcasts. We'll see how it goes. Nothing serious here, but it is problematic when I, that I start coughing. Anyway, I, it's May 5th, 2019, 26 years since uh, Jason Baldwin, Damon Eccles, and Jesse Miskelly killed Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Robert Hood Hills in West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, I think it's safe to say that for the families in particular, uh, it may not get easier with time. Um, I'm going to read today, do something a little different today and read from Boxful, read my review of Boxful of Nightmares, Terry Hobbs' personal memoirs on the West Memphis Three Murders. Let me say briefly that I have no monetary or really any other consideration going with it, with with uh, this review, except goodwill towards uh, Mr. Hobbs getting his story out, and uh, goodwill toward his writer Vicky Vicky Edwards, who is his cousin, for doing such a good job of of writing the story. But I'll read the review and. And that should suffice for this episode. It may be a little shorter than some other episodes. Some of you may like that. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, uh, my review. In the preface to Blood on Black, which is my book, one of my books on the West Memphis Three, I wrote that one of the untold stories about the West Memphis Three case worthy of a book treatment was how the victims' families were devastated, first by the loss of the boys, and then by a series of betrayals and accusations that still dogged them over 20 years later. There had already been a book about Mark Byers, father of Chris ba Christopher Byers, by Greg Day, Untying the Knot, John Mark Byers and the West Memphis Three. The book was a sympathetic, balanced look at a troubled man, obviously deeply grieving the loss of his son, but it was not a book written from the heart. At long last, after many years of talk about his prospective book, the story of Terry Hobbs has finally been told. Let me say briefly that Terry Hobbs was the stepfather of Stevie Branch, who was one of the eight-year-old boys that were killed. Boxful of Nightmares, which his Hobbs story is told to his cousin, Vicki Edwards, is a straightforward, deeply felt testament of a man who, after many harrowing years living in the aftermath of the murder of stepson Stevie Branch, was blindsided by a string of high-profile accusations based on the flimsiest of evidence. Evidence doesn't get much thinner than a single hair that may or may not have been from Hobbs and is perfectly explainable as a secondary transfer transfer of evidence. The hair evidence was found in the laces that bound Michael Moore when he was murdered by drowning in the ditch that also took the life of Stevie and where the body of their friend Christopher Byers was also dumped in the late afternoon of May 5, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. The bodies of the three boys, all eight-year-old second graders, were found the next day after an extensive search. 
Eventually, three local teens, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly, were arrested after Miskelly confessed to the crimes. The three were convicted of the murders in 1994, but eventually released in 2011 after pleading guilty in exchange for release for time served. The impetus for the plea deal came from a groundswell of public opinion after two documentaries on HBO misled the public into thinking the case had been mishandled by the police and the courts. Various rock stars and Hollywood celebrities took the free the West Memphis Three cause to heart. Until 2007, the public was led to believe that the likeliest suspect was Mark Byers, based not on evidence, but mostly on his wild demeanor, <clears throat> which was largely an act for the benefit of the cameras paid for by filmmakers Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky. A book, Devil's Knot, by an Arkansas writer, devoted much of its text to Byers' life while minimizing the deeply troubling records of the convicted killers. The name of Terry Hobbs appears just four times in the index of that book, while a whole column of indexed references cite Mark Byers. Such was the state of the case in 2002, the date of the copyright. All that changed after defense investigators used deception to gather cigarette butts, probably left by Terry Hobbs, and found that his DA cannot be ruled out as a source for the crime scene here, with about 1.5% of the public being possible sources. That, that translates to millions of potential suspects just in the United States alone. Suddenly, the media bought into the idea that Hobbs was a viable, viable suspect, despite the obvious flimsiness of the evidence, so-called evidence. Evident Hobbs and David Jacoby were interviewed by the West Memphis Police Department on June 21, 2007, about their recollections of May 5th and 6th, 1993. As an aside, I really do wish the West Memphis Police had talked to and recorded, kept it, marked it down for, kept it recorded for posterity interviews with all the parents and people like David Jacoby immediately after the killings. It's unfortunate it didn't happen. I don't think it was, uh, there was no sinister plot, uh, you know, afoot with this. There was no plan with this. It just was some sort of oversight. I would say it was some sort of oversight on their part, and I, I'm not sure what their thinking was about it at the time, uh, probably because they didn't really look at the, obviously, deeply distressed parents, none of them seem to be obvious suspects. Uh, at least then, <laughs> they seem to be, they seem like some people think they're there that so obvious now. Uh, I don't think they appear that way then. Anyway, back to this. Uh, both men talk about J Jacoby and Hobbs in their interviews in 2007 about the events that happened, you know, 14 years earlier in 1993, both men admitted to having difficulty recalling the exact sequence of events from a stressful time some 14 years earlier, and their stories were not consistent on details. Still, Hobbs and Jacoby, a friend of Hobbs, described a series of events, of events that, combined with other documented facts, effectively gave Hobbs an alibi if one was needed. In 2009, Jacoby gave another statement describing Hobbs searching extensively for his stepson that evening, 
often with Jacoby and with a number of contacts with Jacoby during the time the boys were believed to have been murdered. In an online letter to fans in November 2007, Dixie Chicks lead singer Natalie Maines posted about her then recent involvement in the West Memphis Three cause based on seeing the documentaries and subsequent close contact with Eccles' wife, Lori Davis. In other words, she really didn't know much about the case. Maines claimed that DNA evidence linked to Hobbs and Jacoby was found at the crime scene. She also cited various other tenuous claims against Hobbs. Maines followed up with similar statements at a Little Rock rally for the killers in 2007. This grew a defamation lawsuit in 2008 from Hobbs, who alleged the fake statements were false. He sought compensation for damages to his reputation. The suit allowed her attorneys to depose Hobbs extensively and then query him on a variety of unproven allegations with the videos then posted in public media. While the depositions provided no proof that Hobbs was in any way a viable suspect, they provided further fuel for Hobbs' attackers. As Hobbs says in the book, quote, the questioning was brutal and most of it was designed to implicate me in a crime I didn't commit, unquote. The lawsuit was dismissed by the courts in 2009, with the judge ruling that actual malice, which is a criteria for establishing defamation of a public figure, could not be established, nor could Hobbs prove that the statements were made with reckless disregard for the truth, which is another standard for libel. The courts ruled that Hobbs had established himself as a, quote, limited public figure, unquote, through his own actions including announced plans to publish a book, and so, absent actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth, he had no case for defamation. The statement has since been scrubbed from the Dixie Chicks website, along with most references to Maine's activism in the West Memphis case. Dubious assertions aired in West of Memphis, the West of Memphis documentary about, quote, a Hobbs family secret, unquote, with the sources being Two Young Criminals with a Grudge Against a Hobbs Family Member aired in, oh, I repeated this, aired in West Memphis, a fourth documentary. This one co-produced by one of the killers, Damien Eccles, with the support of Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson. In 2013, a court action seeking access for family members to the murder evidence was used as a pretext for filing statements intended to implicate Hobbs, as well as three others who had already figured in the case. The sworn statements came from two career criminals serving long sentences for rape in the Arkansas prison system. Though completely unsubstantiated and often contradicted by case evidence, those statements again got media play and brought more attention to Hobbs. The smear campaign brought death threats and harassment, with strangers showing up at Hobbs' workplace in attempts to compromise his employment. Essentially, though he has never been a suspect, Hobbs has been treated by, as such by many followers of the case and members of the poorly informed public. The book sets the record straight, though those already convicted are unlikely to be changing their minds. Lisa O'Brien, a co-host of the Behind the Curtain and Clear and Convincing Podcast gives some enlightening background information in the book's forward. The book's title, Box Full of Miracles, 
not only doesn't work, it's really kind of creepy. A box inevitably draws thoughts of a coffin. Still, the subtitle actually tells prospective readers what the book actually is, Carrie's story. The box in the title refers to a box holding the journals Hobbes has kept since May 1993, a chronicle of personal struggle against the devastation wrought not only by Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly, but by irresponsible media figures and former acquaintances and family members who will go to any lengths on the basis of a grudge. Hobbes admits, quote, some of the details are foggy, unquote, in his Chronicle of the Evening of May 5th, writing from the standpoint of 18 years later, and now it's, you know, 26 years later. Uh, no doubt his detractors will point out discrepancies with earlier statements and complain about the lack of specific detail on times, etc. Despite the admitted fogginess, a clear picture emerges. At one point, he explains, quote, I didn't call Pam at work because I didn't want to alarm her, and I still thought, thought the three boys were playing, and we would find them, scold them for scaring us, and get home for the evening, unquote. Pam Hobbs, the mother of Stevie Branch and now Terry's former wife, has often described her anger and resentment over Terry not informing her about their son's continued disappearance until after her work shift ended at nine. His explanation, while still likely unsatisfactory to her and many others, exemplifies a hopeful and common sense attitude. In a more innocent time, it was not unusual for boys to wander off and lose track of time, worrying parents. The horror of his stepson's murder was well beyond Terry's comprehension that evening. The story is told in Hobbes' own words, to the point and heartfelt, with occasional interjections from Vicki Edwards, a sympathetic voice in her own right. It's a relatively short, easy read, told in the down-home vernacular of a regular guy from the Mid-South. If anything, it's often too honest about the many trials and tribulations Hobbes has faced. Some he acknowledges he brought upon himself, some he was able to overcome, much of which he has simply endured. His on-again, off-again relationship with Pam obviously weighs heavily on him as he sees what might have been and what it became. As for his daughter Amanda, who was just four when her brother was killed, he continues to be her protector, her loving father, while grieving over the traumas and family dramas that have drastically affected her life, including trips to rehab and drug court. While Hobbs obviously has deep dislikes for certain folks, Attempting to even the score with his most personal attackers, it seems, unlike some others, he has been able to move on from the events of May 1993 while never losing sight of what was lost. Some of what was lost was the assumption of innocence that most of us would simply take for granted. While celebrities with deep pockets and an unsympathetic court system are arrayed against him, he seems most troubled by everyday encounters gone wrong. Describing an encounter with a sympathetic member of the public at a local subway shop, he says, It was an humbling experience to meet someone who didn't hate me, unquote. Still, he expresses gratitude for those who have stood by him. And always, there is the son who is just now just a memory. As he says, there were many things that his mother and I 
his father and his sister never got to see because somebody took him from us. We didn't get to see him play in Little League, have his first girlfriend, teach him to drive, or buy him a car. We missed his first dance, his first day of high school, his first football game, and his graduation. We miss Stevie. Box Full of Nightmares is an often eloquent testament of fortitude from a victim who refuses to let injustice, disappointment, and loss define his life. And that's it. I uh, hope to be talking to you again soon. My voice is doing better, so hopefully I'll, I'll be able to get back on a regular basis with this. Anyway, thank you for your patience, and have a good day.